The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses. The Empathy Gap. How to understand what your publisher is telling you. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. So this is an interesting one. Um, I wrote an essay some time ago called The Empathy Gap. Um, and it was really a meditation for me on kind of what I'm trying to do with the newsletter, what I'm trying to do as in my role in the industry outside of just like doing my job, right? And one of the things I really want to do is help writers understand what publishers are doing and thinking 
and encourage publishers to think about what the writer experience is, and for everyone to like build a little bridge of empathy between those two audiences, right? So the metaphor I use in, in the essay is about the difference between being a home cook and being a professional cook, right? Accidents happen in the kitchen. You're going to cut yourself. You're going to burn yourself, right? If you're a professional chef working in a kitchen, that happens every day. You, you have scars. You have burns. You're like, ah, I burned myself again. You know, I, I'll, you'll watch like professional chefs grab a hot pan out of the oven and not flinch versus like me as, you know, a home chef. I'm like, I need every mitt in my space to like touch <laughs> anything vaguely warm. And so, you know, for me, sometimes as an industry person, I feel like that professional chef and a writer will come to me and be like, oh, I burned myself. And I'll be like, huh, that sucks. <laughs> so uh, what are you doing next, right? Or like, get back, you got you, that. we got orders coming up, oh, right? You, you, still get have nerves. you still have nerves in your hand? That's cool for exactly. you. Exactly. And so <laughs> there is this difference of, you know, me, I see dozens of careers. I see dozens of books come out. I've seen every iteration of, you know, things going wrong, right? So when it goes wrong, sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a small way, my reaction is, in, my, my knee-jerk reaction is sometimes like, yeah, that sucks. Tough luck. Bad day. What's tomorrow, right? <laughs> and so for me, it's forcing myself to take a step back and remember, what is this person experiencing right now? This is the book that they've spent 10 years working on. This is their career. Things look dire. They don't have my experience and know that tomorrow will be okay, that there are more books to be written, that there is a future for their career. So how do we communicate that in a way that is more rooted in empathy for the other person, but still communicating the important information? I really love this metaphor because I think it is such a, a neat way for the aspiring writer to think about it. Like, you love cooking, but do you really want to own a restaurant? That's the step up that you're talking about, becoming a professional writer and suddenly putting your work in front of people, uh, having to constantly be critiqued about it. Uh, and, and so if you think about it in those terms, think, well, yes, I really do love this enough that I'm willing to burn off all my fingertips and cut myself on the knife every day, uh, then yeah, uh, take that plunge and become the professional chef. Absolutely. But there's a difference between, you know, inevitable injuries. Like it, it's inevitable that if you are pulling out sheet pans often enough that you're going to, you're going to hit a rack at one mm -hmm. point um, versus toxic, yes. you know, like an unsafe working conditions, because there are also things that will happen in a professional kitchen that people are just like, no, nah, of course, of co what you, you don't know that you have to step over the missing stair. Um, you know, there, there are things, there are things that shouldn't be allowed that OSHA would shut down that people can get socialized into accepting as just like, oh, this is the way things are supposed to be. And I shouldn't try to do anything to fix it. I've seen that a lot from both sides. I've been in work environments that were unsafe in certain ways, that had practices that we've worked really hard to change over time. Um, the industry has made a lot of progress, and it's hard to see that sometimes, but, you know, the behavior that I saw coming up, you know, I'm not going to call them out specifically, but it, stories that we would tell at drinks after work, there were some very intense things that if people, you know, were experiencing that today, it would be a huge scandal and a shock. Versus then it was sort of everyday behavior. We, I remember we all went to go see the Devil Wears Prada together uh, as a little <laughs> bit of like, you know, solidarity. And we went, what was she complaining about? 
None of that seemed out of pocket to us, <laughs> oh, right? Dear. That was all like, oh, no. what a baby. You know what I mean? Like, uh, And, you know, I think that is something to keep in mind that, you know, a lot of us are coming from these experiences of having been in toxic environments growing up or, you know, coming up in the industry, not my household growing up, but like in a professional way. And so figuring out how do we make things safer for people? How do we build things with more empathy is one of the big challenges that I think the industry is facing today in one of the, the conflicts that we're seeing, right? Um, and so trying to find that balance for myself in how I communicate with people is an ongoing challenge. Makes me think different people need different levels of empathy. You know, as an author, you might need like, you know, you might need a lot of care. You might be like, I am hardened to this world and I need nothing. How do you figure out what you need and who's the best fit for you working with publishing to make sure like that the gap is matching the amount that they're about uh, able to leap, so totally. to speak? And, you know, I think that is an important thing for you to know about yourself, and it's a hard thing to figure out. I have explicit conversations about with my writers, right? Like, when I send something out on sub, I'll actually ask the writer, hey, how much do you want to hear about this process? Do you want to know every rejection that comes through? Do you only want to know the good news? Do you only want the news at the end, right? You know, and some people will say, you know what, just tell me the good stuff. I also work with one writer who's always, every time I give editorial feedback, I talk about the nice things and I talk about the negative things. When I start talking about the nice things, she's like, yeah, 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 like, get to the other stuff. You know what I mean? She doesn't want to hear the nice stuff on some level. She wants, she feels it's almost insincere how I'm not getting into the, like, the nitty gritty. And so those explicit conversations, I've been encouraging her to listen to the nice stuff. I think it's important. But, you know, those conversations about what people need in terms of like that communication style is really important. And then finding an agent who will work with you on that, finding editors who will work with you on that is really important. For me, sometimes when I'm picking what editor to sub to for a writer, I will think about, you know, that editor is kind of rough in how they communicate or like, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just they're very direct, right? And I'm like, that writer, that's a bad fit. That is, that is not a relationship that's going to be productive versus sometimes I know, oh, this person is really good with somebody who like needs a little extra care, who needs a little bit more of that deep dive in the emotional work, and that produces better fiction at the end of the day. So that's a really good pairing, right? Those are things that I'm thinking about very explicitly. I am trying to draw that out from the writer when I talk to them, but it also helps me when the writer shows up having a little bit of that sensibility. How you figure that out for yourself, that's between you and your therapist, I think, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that's a little bit of, like, what your experiences are. That's learning from interacting with the industry, interacting with other writers. I think, honestly, I think of it as an episode of Dexter where you 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 want to know you you, you want to know how thick skinned you are. Analyze the splatter patterns after you're done talking to your editor. Yeah. No, seriously, analyze it. How much of your blood is on the wall? Yeah. Oh, a lot. Okay, this didn't go well for you. Write that down. Describe how you feel about it, so that you have a metric for it as time goes on, mm -hmm. so that you understand. Oh, wait. I actually am pretty thick-skinned. It's just that that editor has a very, very sharp knife. And it's something you have to learn about yourself, whether or not you have a therapist. And share that with your team, right? Especially your agent. That is my yeah. job is to manage not just what conversations are happening, but how those conversations are happening. I've had to pull editors aside and be like, hey, you can't communicate to this writer that way. It, it's not producing great results. Um, or if I felt it was inappropriate, I've said that too. I've been like, I don't like that. That's how you talk to my writer, right? Um, and there are other times where I've been like, 
hey, we're going a little soft here and they need to be pushed a little bit more. I need you to be more direct about what's going on because they're feeling confused right now, right? So I can't do that work unless I know what's going on. So as always, my advice is always, please tell your agent everything. We need to know this stuff because we can't do anything unless we know about it, right? So do that analysis, but then don't forget to share it. After the break, I have a story about how to read between the lines. Great. Let's uh, take that break and then we'll get back to that story. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I want to tell you about The Lavender House by Lev A.C. Rosen. So this is a murder mystery set in 1950s San Francisco. It feels like something Dashiell Hammett wrote. Um, And it is also a coming-of-age story for an adult gay man. It is found family. It is glamour. it It is steeped steeped with evocative descriptions. It's set in a, uh, a soap family. Like they, they built their empire 
with soap. So every page is just like laden with scent. It's so good. It manages to succeed on multiple levels. I loved it to bits. Um, highly recommend this, whether you're looking for a, a heartwarming story about family, uh, a story about someone who is finding themselves. He was, he was a, a beat cop and they caught him in a raid. And he's now a private detective. And, uh, and then there's a tightly plotted murder mystery. It is beautifully told, highly recommended, The Lavender House by Lev A.C. Rosen. Okay, so it's early 2018, and I am drawing uh, Munchkin Starfinder cards for Steve Jackson Games, who is licensing the Starfinder intellectual property from Paizo. And I had an art director a game designer, and a Paizo IP editor all in the approval chain, but the only one who would talk to me was the art director. And the art director kept coming back to me on this one illustration saying, uh, Matt says the wrench is too big. I do a redraw. Matt says the wrench is still too big. Uh, Matt's third time around. Matt says the wrench is still too big. Well, I was drawing a very small character with a cartoonishly large wrench, and I realized it's not that the wrench is too big. It's that Matt doesn't like the idea of a cartoonishly large wrench in the hands of this small character. But Matt is not willing to tell me that he doesn't like the joke. He just doesn't like the... Maybe he doesn't know how to say it. Maybe he doesn't want to say it. But I managed to read between the lines, and I told this to the art director, Shelley. I said, uh, Matt just doesn't like the joke altogether. And he's wrecking the symmetry of the picture by changing the size of the wrench. So I'm going to replace the wrench with a flamethrower and fill the volume that the wrench was in with smoke. Ask Matt if that's okay. And then I will draw the picture one more time. And what went through the approval chain was, oh, Matt loves that idea. And the point here is that realizing that the feedback may be coming from a place that is not being accurately described to you is a critically important skill. Your editor, your editor may not always know how to tell you why something isn't working. It, this is such a great point because it's a reminder that the empathy, empathy gap goes both ways. We've talked a lot about how publishers or me can sometimes struggle to remember to be sensitive to the author's experience. But in the other direction as well, I always appreciate it when I can feel that a writer has remembered that I'm just a person, right? I'm not a, a single source of authority. I don't know everything. I'm not perfect. Shocking to everyone here, I know. But, you know, I think one thing that could have happened there was Matt may not have realized that that was the issue. He may have just been like, oh, I don't like this wrench, and not had the extra thought past that of understanding why. So you putting yourself in Matt's shoes a little bit, I think, helped solve that problem. And writers can do that too. I think there's this idea that like, oh, publishers have all the authority and it's all flowing in my direction. I need to adapt to whatever they say. And that's not true. It, it is a relationship between individuals, right? You are interacting, they're representing this big organization, but you are a person and the person you're talking to is a person. And sometimes you can like shortcut some of that by tapping into the humanity of the person that you're talking to. I find that when I am reading something that's coming to me, that that it helps if I think, okay, read this as if they are writing it in good faith. 
Um, and the second thing is that if I find myself getting angry about a lot of different points, that I will walk away from it and then come back and reread because there's a fair chance that what's happened is that my defensiveness has just been triggered because it's hard to read people telling you unpleasant things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I come back then and then say, okay, now read it again, but as if it's written in good faith. And most of the time when I do that, um, it, is, it is something that I can then at least respond to in a way that's going to be productive as opposed to responding in a way that will be an angry escalation and a shutting down of conversation. Exactly. Even if, even if my, I come back and I'm still mad. <laughs> you can still be mad, right? And, and responding that way is a valid response. And sometimes what you need to do is have the conflict, right? But as a first step, remembering this person is busy, this person is overworked and underpaid, and they're very stressed out all the time. Now, in that mindset, they wrote this email. What does that mean, right? Did they intend to say the thing that I'm taking away from it? Or do they mean to say something else? That doesn't mean you need to forgive them for doing the thing, but it might help you understand a little bit what's actually happening, right? So much of what I do is translate publisher emails to my clients of like, they said this, here's what that means, right? That, that So much of my job is like a little bit of mind reading and interpretation between these two audiences, right? Um, I think it's why I see this gap so much because I kind of live in it. Um, I want to, switch a little bit to something very specific and concrete, especially for new writers, especially for people getting into the industry, your main interaction in your early days is going to be rejection letters. So I want to talk a little bit about what it feels like to receive a rejection letter and also what it feels like to send one, right? Rejectomancy. I know, exactly. <laughs> and so it it's a point of conflict. It's a point of friction. Um, I, I guess I'm a little bit curious, like, what was y'all's, like, first experience of receiving rejections in the industry? Were those, like, really blunt, awful things? Were people cruel to you? Like, is there anything that really stands out from those early days? I think the thing I remember the most is just collecting them in a cool way. Like, so one thing that I did with a group of friends really early on was we set rejection goals for ourselves, like, to to get a certain number of rejections and had a lovely little... Like everyone picked a thing that they would do every time that they got a rejection. So, you know, I will take a nice bath and collect my rejection and celebrate it with my peers Mm -hmm. and then send the next thing like and already have the next place maybe for a story that I wanted to go and basically assume that rejection is a thing that will happen, that it's a part of the process and that it moves you closer to acceptance as opposed to that it is a thing telling you to stop to leave and to run away. Uh-huh. And so I remember sort of cheering on like with other people, oh, you went out and you sent it out. If you got 10 more rejections, that means you sent it 10 more places. And that's hard work. And yeah, we will celebrate sure. the work because that's what happened. And so I remember that more than any particular rejection. And I think it helped me to have something else to focus on. Uh-huh. A, uh, a piece of advice that I often give for dating, which is not what this podcast is about, <laughs> um, is that when you go on a date, have a secondary objection objective. So like I used to collect songs from people I went on dates with. So if the date's bad, at least I learned about a new song and that's interesting. And it gives me a way to not live in like this date was a failure, but my song list went up and that's a success. Mm-hmm. And similarly in the writing world, by having like these rituals and these things that I work with, uh, with other people, I can no longer remember any particular rejection, just the bath and the celebration with my friends. I love that. I love that so much. You know, one thing that's important 
is, you know, we often fall into dating metaphors when talking about, you know, finding an agent, rejection, or, you know, placing a story, whatever it is, because you're always trying to find that exact right fit. The one thing that I want to point out that's really different from dating in the publishing process, there's many things that are different, but when, as an agent, I am seeing hundreds of query letters, right? There's an asymmetry to what's happening. When you're dating, it's like one-to-one. You're both, hopefully, you know, seeing a number of people over time, whatever. But, like, it's not one person submitting a thing amid hundreds of other things. I'm not spending, you know, yeah, two no. hours rejecting 200 dates, right? The, 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 the dating application... Uh, analogy still works. It's just that the slush pile is your Tinder profile. <laughs> right, exactly. And so for you, I think submitting it feels really important in that that rejection letter feels so significant in that way. So I love taking the sting out of it a little bit by you know making a ritual around it and celebrating getting the rejection, which I think is also important. Um, but from my perspective, it's like I, I've sent a hundred of these in a row, right? Um, and so I think understanding a little bit what that process looks like for us on our side will help frame a little bit what is actually in that letter, you know? Um, I see writers sometimes on Twitter being confused or, or pushing back on particular phrases that you see in rejection letters a lot of time, which, or something along the lines of like, you know, um, I'm sure you'll find a home for this elsewhere, or I really love this, but it's not a good fit. Not a good fit is a thing I see a pushback on a lot when it's probably the most honest thing in the yeah. letter, actually. Um, it's the thing that's saying, it's not that this is bad, it's just that it's not right for me. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I haven't even seen enough to know whether good or bad, but I have seen enough to know I'm not the audience for it. I'm not the agent for it. So I think understanding that a little bit, that this letter is coming from somebody who's in a position who's trying to accomplish a specific goal can help quite a bit. Yeah, the it's not a good fit. I think one of the reasons that authors hate that one so much, I should say aspiring authors hate that one so much, uh, is because there's really nothing they can do about it, right? You get that and you realize it doesn't matter all the work and the effort I put into writing this and to revising it and to making it the best thing it could be. None of that mattered because this person just doesn't like it. Like, and... The, like you, you can't revise it. Into yeah, the I, I, can't, I can't revise it and solve this problem. The only solution to this problem is to keep doing the submission process over and over again, which I'm sick of already and I hate. Um, as an experienced writer who's done this several times, I love getting that because I know that I don't want my book to be with someone who doesn't love it. Yeah, exactly. And that is such a hard thing for the new writer still trying to break in to really get their head around. And they think, no, please, even if you don't love this, take it anyway. I'll do anything. I just want to be published. No, you don't. It is worth waiting for the right fit. We had in 2006, I say we, uh, we uh, Sandra and I, we shopped Schlock Mercenary with an agent to see if anybody in the sci-fi market would uh, pick it up and publish it. And uh, after a few months, the agent came back to us and said, uh, well, we got two kinds of responses. Response number one was, oh, Schlock Mercenary. I love this comic strip, but we have no idea how we would publish it. And the second response was, I don't know what Schlock Mercenary is, but it looks like a comic strip. We have no idea how we would publish it. And that was actually super useful feedback because what it told me is there is a there is a hole in the sci-fi publishing space 
that maybe I'll have to fill myself by printing our own books. And the sci-fi market is ready for schlock mercenary to be a thing that they love because editors are already reading it and enjoying it. And I think that's a gap that can exist in many different ways. I think one of the reasons that it's not a good fit can can have a sting to it is that sometimes it really just means, hey, it's just not the right fit for me. And sometimes it's a surface level that can hide some deeper inequities and inability to read marginalized folks in the way that they should, you know, that they should be read and to identify where an audience is for a book in the way that we wish the publishing industry did. And so sometimes hearing that time and time again feels like there isn't space for me at the table versus that I haven't found that seat at the table yet. And it's hard to tell what the difference is when you're just reading those words on the page. So I think the thing that I would encourage people a lot is not to try and read too much into any one rejection letter, right? Um, I think one of the hardest, listen, we're all storytellers, right? We all want to build little stories about anything that we see. And so sometimes when you see that in a letter, you know, as Dan was talking about, like, you want to do something about it. You want to say, oh, then I can edit it this way. I can do that. When the reality is you've been given no data and that's fine, right? I, I was having this conversation with the writer just the other day that like, you know, numbers weren't exactly where we wanted them to meet. And they were talking about like, what can I do about that? I want to do something and all this. Um, and I said, there's nothing to be done at this time. We have a plan. We're going to continue with that plan because we don't know enough yet to change, right? And, you know, I could really lay it out. Here are the buttons. Here are the levers that we have to pull. These are our options. We're not ready to make a decision on any of those things yet. So what Howard's talking about is when you have the full set of rejections, when you've gone through a number of people, you're getting consistent feedback, that tells you something. What Aaron is talking about in terms of like realizing that there isn't space in the market because of this reason, because publishing isn't making space for it, that's a different response. For an individual letter, though, I would really encourage people to be very careful about thinking that this this form letter or this, you know, short rejection letter is telling me something very specific. If an editor has written you something longer, has given you very specific feedback, that's something you can respond to. But when it's something a little bit more general, I'd, wor- I'd caution you to be careful of over-indexing on it. There's a, I took a workshop with uh, Christine Catherine Rush and she told this story at it, which is that she had, she keeps a meticulous log of where she sent stories and, um, for reasons she doesn't do revisions after she starts sending them out. So uh, she sent it to a place and then accidentally, sometime it got rejected, accidentally sometime later, resent it to the same place. And as she was reaching out to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to send it to you a second time, they emailed her with an acceptance. And the acceptance said, I really loved the changes that you made to this story. (laughs) to a story that she had not revised at all. And what she learned from that was the, 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 the takeaway is not that you should just keep submitting things to the same place. It's that, that when a story is rejected, it is not the right fit for that market and that editor on that day. Absolutely. And that it's not the quality of the writing. Sometimes it is, to be clear, when you're early career, sometimes it is the quality of the writing. But it's not that. It's the whether or not it is serving the need of them on that day and and what mood that they're in even when, when you when they read it. So, you know, just 
be gentle with yourself. One way in which I approach the empathy gap is making sure I'm hydrated, fed, and rested when I'm doing, when I'm looking at queries, right? I don't want to be in a bad mood. I never, if I'm like, I am grumpy, this is not the time to be looking at, at queries because I won't be fair, right? But, you know, something to remember on the other side of it is, and I know hearing that things are so random can be very difficult to hear. And again, I have empathy for that. I get it. It's frustrating. But the person on the other end of that, the person sending the retraction, whether it's a short story, whether it's an agent, whatever it is, they're going fast. They're doing this. They're doing their job. They're in a workflow of processing the pile of rejections that is, or a pile of submissions that is building up and then trying to get them out the door, right? They're trying to get responses back to you in a timely way. And that's the other thing is there's a lot of pressure on me to do it fast. In addition, people want responses. I'm very busy. I got a lot going on. I got hundreds of these queries to get through. It takes me time to do it because it's hard to find a block of time that I can sit down and do this. And so, you know, there's all these like pressures on it that you that I would encourage writers to think about when they receive that letter and you feel that disappointment. But then remember, this may not mean anything. This isn't a critique of the story necessarily even or of me as a person. This is an interaction I had with an individual in a point in time and that's okay. Let's move on to the next one. Let's take that bath. Let's celebrate with my friends. And then what's the next step? Um, and so on that note, I would love to move to our homework. Perfect. Because the homework is to put yourself on the other side of the empathy gap. Find a piece of fiction that you really, really enjoy. And then write a kind, personal rejection for it. Think about what you would be doing if this wasn't the right fit for you, despite the fact that this is something that you really, on a personal level, love as a story experience. In the next episode of Writing Excuses, we discuss the difference between mentorship and solidarity and how to be a gate opener, not a gatekeeper. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.